Jesus walked that lonesome valley. Uh, the hymn remembers Jesus' crucifixion. On the day that Jesus was crucified from noon till three, we're told that total darkness fell over the land. And uh, I don't know what that was like. I, I wonder sometimes. Was it kind of the, the eerie darkness? If you ever, you know, recently, a few years ago, we had that solar eclipse, total solar eclipse. If you were able to be in that, and if it wasn't clouded over, there's this eerie kind of darkness that falls. Or maybe it was more like a total, complete darkness, unnatural for that time of day. You know, this, this darkness harkens back to the Passover. Um, this, is, this is taking place during the Passover festival, and so we can look back in our Bibles to Exodus, where uh, in the Passover event, uh, there's the plagues that happened, and, uh, and you had this total darkness that fell over the land for a time. Whatever it was like, it marked the last three hours before Jesus died, and we're going to spend some time talking this morning about darkness and valleys that we go through in life. We're continuing our series on the seven last words of Jesus uh, with the phrase today, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line of of Psalm 22. The the seven last words are the seven things that Jesus spoke during his crucifixion. Uh, So they are, uh, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. Uh, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what Steve talked about last week. Woman, here is your son, And here is your mother, this is Jesus speaking to John and to Jesus' own mother Mary and connecting them, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Father, into your hands I entrust or commit or commend my spirit. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? I'm thirsty, which uh, we were just, Brent and I were just talking in in the gathering space a minute ago. How do, we, how do we fill a whole sermon with a, I'm, I'm thirsty? <laughs> Might be a short Sunday, but I'm sure there's a lot that we can talk about there. And then the final one, uh, it is finished, which even is echoed there. I, I don't know if you caught that at the end of the psalm. It is finished. If you want to look these up, uh, go to Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. You'll find three of the words in the Gospel of Luke. You'll find three of them in the Gospel of John. And the last, which is the word we're looking at today, is found in both Matthew and Mark, and as we mentioned, it calls back to Psalm 22. So it's the only word or phrase that's recorded by uh, two writers with a slight difference that we'll explain in a minute. Why don't all the gospel writers go through all seven phrases? Last week, Steve gave us uh, some really great thoughts on how to read the Bible and, and, and not how to read the Bible. Um, when we see discrepancies or differences in gospel accounts, it's not a reason to dismiss or pull apart. It's a reason to lean in and ask questions. First, set the scene in your mind. No one at the crucifixion was walking around with a scroll and something to write with. Uh, the gospels were collected from eyewitness accounts, um, and, and they were collected after the events happened. Second, remember that in this case, we're talking about a six-hour ordeal, We know that some of Jesus' followers were watching from a distance, which might account for difficulty hearing all that was being said. There were other criminals being crucified alongside, adding to the clamor. Um, The criminals and others standing around shouted and jeered at Jesus throughout this account. Um, Remember that the emotions being experienced uh, by those that were there would have been strong, powerful emotions. Jesus' closest disciples must have been devastated to see Jesus struggling to breathe, bruised and bleeding, hands and feet pierced. If I were there 
And if I were asked to give an account of the story, I don't know how much I would be able to recall, but I would recall what I could clearly. So we're getting pieces of it from these different eyewitnesses, and that's where we get the whole picture. That's what we get. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John represent four perspectives of the same event. And I believe the composite picture that we get is reliable and true. If we look at the differences, we might miss how often the stories line up and confirm and corroborate one another. So, let's take a look at the two gospel passages that share Jesus speaking, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The language in Matthew and Mark in this passage is nearly identical. And so we're going to put both on the screen here, and I'll read from Matthew. Uh, This is Matthew 27, verses 45 to 50, and it's Mark 15, verses 33 to 37. And you should be able to look this up on your Bible app and find us under events, and you can follow along with these notes if if that's something you'd like to do too. Um, Matthew 27, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Uloi, Uloi, lama savakhani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m., so he had already been on the cross for about three hours when darkness fell over the land. I don't think I have to go into great detail on crucifixion, but suffice it to say, it was designed to be extremely painful, humiliating, and to extend suffering as long as possible. It wasn't uncommon for a crucifixion to last a day or more if allowed. So around six hours, Jesus cried out with what has been called the cry of desolation. And I want to point out the difference between the two Gospels here. Matthew writes that Jesus called Eli, Eli, and Mark writes, Uloi, Uloi. Both Mark and Matthew then explain that this means, my God, my God, and both Matthew and Mark say that those standing nearby think that he's calling to Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. So first, the reason that Matthew and Mark translate this for the reader is that the Gospels were written in Greek, and this quote is in Aramaic, except that Matthew's Eli, Eli could also be Hebrew. Um, Jesus was trilingual, at least. He could speak Aramaic and Hebrew, the ancient languages of the scriptures and the Jewish people, but he also spoke Greek, the common language of the day. So Matthew and Mark are assuming that most readers wouldn't understand what Jesus is saying in Aramaic, but they also want to quote Jesus correctly. So why Eli versus Eloi? When Jesus was calling, uh, was Jesus calling to the prophet or was he quoting Psalm 22? Uh, it's, it's widely accepted among biblical scholars that he was quoting the psalm, which would have the Aramaic, Aramaic uloi. Matthew, using Eli, probably indicates a reverence for the title of God. Mark wanted to quote the original, but Matthew, who wrote from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience, wanted to show proper reverence for God's name by not speaking or writing it. And this was and is still common. Um, In Hebrew, the name of God is basically spelled uh, Y-H-W-H, but English speakers have used words like Yahweh or Jehovah to add some vowel sounds to it so as not to speak God's holy name from sinful lips. Around the time of Jesus, uh, there were these rabbinical teachings that were contained in uh, what's called targums, and it's kind of like a commentary on on the, the passage. So they would 
they would print up uh, something like Psalm 22, and they would add in these kind of uh, comments of, of commentary, uh, explaining what we're reading, that kind of thing. In the Targum, for Psalm 22, Psalm 22, one uses Eli for my God. So this is probably what Matthew was doing. He was humbly writing down the holy words and holy name of God with reverence, while Mark was interested in writing it accurately. So he wrote the Aramaic, Uloi. Despite all this, those standing near still misunderstood and thought that maybe he was talking to the prophet Elijah. Um, Elijah, remember, did not die in the Old Testament. If you go back to 2 Kings 2, you see that Elijah is taken up into heaven in, uh, by kind of a chariot of fire in a whirlwind. Um, so we never see him die. At the time of Jesus, Jewish belief was that Elijah was going to return before the Messiah as a messenger. It could be that those standing near thought that Jesus might actually be calling Elijah down to save him. But more likely, uh, they were probably speaking in jest rather than actual hope. It was more about humiliating Jesus and causing him to suffer. And here's why. In verse 48, we're told that one of the bystanders offers Jesus wine vinegar. Other translations call this sour wine or just vinegar. Uh, The Greek is a, a word otsos. And the Latin is potor, and from one of these we get this more common word of the time, pasca. And pasca was a common drink for Roman soldiers. It was bitter, it was a mixture of wine, vinegar, and spices, and its chief function was to give you a bit of a boost. It was Red Bull for the Roman army. Uh, And they were commanded to drink it or wine on alternating days. You can actually search for Posca, it's P-O-S-C-A. If you search Posca sour wine on Google, one of the pages that comes up right away is stay hydrated with Posca, an ancient Roman energy drink. So the reason that they offered this sour wine to Jesus was to keep him alive, to keep him suffering, um, to try and extend his agony. There's no mercy here. There's no real hope for a miraculous rescue from heaven. This was false piety or a chance to further humiliate Jesus as he hung on the cross. And not long after this, we're told that Jesus gave a loud cry, possibly, it is finished, as recorded by John, and then Jesus died. That's some of the background on the passage. But you can have all the nuts and bolts of something and still miss what's actually happening, and that's where I want to spend the rest of our time. So, Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, Jesus cried out to God with the words of the first line of Psalm 22. What was Jesus experiencing right here? When I was uh, maybe seven or eight years old, uh, I, I, I went to my first swim lesson at our, the Battle Creek public pool. Um, now, I had not done much swimming. I spent most of my time in like the three-foot uh, uh, swimming. And, and, and my swimming was essentially, I will, you know, put my head down underwater, I'll make a lot of motion, and I'll move slowly in one direction. And as soon as I run out of breath, I just stand up. And that was what I knew of how to swim. Um, I was seven or eight, and uh, my, my parents put me in the seven or eight-year-old class because that's where all my friends were going to be. So that made the most sense to them. And, and me, I wanted to be with my friends. I knew that there was a beginner class for five and six-year-olds, but I didn't want to hang out with them. Um, so uh, what, I, what I didn't know was that some of those five and six-year-old beginning lessons were crucial, as I was about to learn the hard way. Uh, so, so let me paint a picture for you. Uh, we're sitting in the pool, we're sitting on the edge of the pool with our legs kind of kicking, 
And the lifeguards are talking to us and kind of explaining what we're going to learn. And, and my mom is, is kind of back behind me uh, on the other side of the fence with all the other parents who are just kind of waiting for the swim lesson and watching and visiting and stuff. And uh, the lifeguards start talking about our first, the first thing we're going to do is kind of review what you learned uh, last year. And so we're going to have everybody just do a crawl stroke across the pool. So I'm like, okay. So I, I, I measure in my mind the distance across the pool. I know that there's no way that I can make that across that without a breath. I also realize that I'm probably, you know, I'm under four foot for sure. And uh, we're sitting in the five foot section. So I was pretty good at math at that point. And I knew that this is, this is a this is a start of a bad situation. Uh, so I, I tried to explain that. But, you know, you're seven or eight, you, you mostly just go along with what's being told you're going to do this. And it's like, okay, but I should, I should let you know. And they're already gone at that point. So it came my turn. And uh, I decided, let me give this the best try that I can. I took as big a breath as I could, and I started my, my swim, mostly a lot of motion, slowly moving across the pool. And wouldn't you know it, I got about halfway across, and I ran out of breath. So I did what I always did when I ran out of breath and was swimming. I went to stand up, and I went right to the bottom of the pool. So uh, a lifeguard charged from the deck. She saw this was happening. She charged. She jumped in. Uh, she grabbed me, got my head above water, and and took me back to the three-foot section, which was a very good move. Um, as soon as I came up, though, uh, my first, the first thing that I did was I turned to look at Mom. And Mom was not there. And I felt crushed. I felt scared. I felt alone. I felt, what, where did she go and why would she go in this moment? What I learned later was that my mom, who has great instincts as a mother, saw what was happening. She saw the lifeguard go in and get me. She knew that I was going to be fine. She stepped out of view because she knew if I turned and looked at her, that would probably be the end of my swim lesson. And I would get out, and I probably wouldn't get back in the pool for a long time. And so we laugh about it now. At the time, though, I was frightened out of my wits. And I just couldn't figure out where she had gone and why she had missed this moment and, and what to do. Um, I didn't know uh, what, that she was actually there. She was having another parent give her the play-by-play from the fence, believe it or not. <laughs> but uh, I, I did stay. I did learn to, to swim. And, uh, and, but that's not the point. The point is that in that moment, I experienced a feeling of being completely alone, scared, vulnerable. I felt ab- abandoned, even though I really wasn't. But I'll bet all of us can relate to that feeling of just being alone, left alone. Maybe it was the first day in college, you know, hours away from everyone and everything that, you, that is familiar to you. Maybe it's in the moment where you've, you've lost a loved one and you just feel alone. Maybe it's being left out of a community that you thought had your back, that feeling of rejection, but we, know, we all know what it's like to feel a hopelessness and fear in those moments. Jesus knew what he was in for when he went to the cross. He's, he was familiar with Isaiah's words, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. In Mark 14, 27, in referencing Zechariah, Jesus told his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew that this suffering was necessary, but 
maybe until this moment, Jesus didn't know what he would experience. Jesus, who was in constant communion with God the Father, who knew God's presence at all times, was suddenly acutely aware that God the Father had abandoned him. And this separation from God at the pinnacle of Jesus' physical suffering must have been agony unimaginable. Why? My God, why have you abandoned me? Pastor uh, Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, gives us two reasons. First, real forgiveness is costly suffering. Keller gives this illustration. Suppose a friend borrows your car, and as he's backing the car out of the driveway, he hits your fence or your gate or your mailbox and causes property damage. And the car insurance won't cover the property damage. They'll, they'll cover the damage to the car, but you've got this, this cost that needs to be paid. So what do you do? You could make your friend pay for the damages. You could pay for the damages yourself, or there's maybe some combination of, of sharing the, the cost. But in any scenario, someone has to pay. Forgiveness of the damage, in this case, means bearing the cost yourself. Let's say that someone wrongs you, uh, robs you of happiness or freedom or opportunity or something else intangible, but definitely felt definitely real. When we're truly wronged, we have this desire that the person that hurt us should pay for it. We want, to hurt, we want them to hurt. You know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? And here you have two options. You can cause the person to suffer, but that would make you cold and hard over time more self-pitying and self-absorbed. Or you can forgive them. You can refuse to make them pay for how they hurt you. But as you might imagine, this choice can be agony. It hurts terribly to absorb the debt and the loss and never take it out on the other person. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. It's, it's costly. So many ask, why can't God just forgive us? But you can see from these illustrations that no one just forgives, especially if the evil is serious. It hurts to forgive. Keller writes, forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So you can reach out in love to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of the sin yourself. So it's not surprising that when God set out to forgive the sins of the world, rather than punish us for the ways that we've wronged him and each other, God went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ to suffer. On the cross, Jesus experienced the full punishment of your sin and mine, but only on an infinitely larger scale. He came face to face with every dark, destructive, or careless deed from all of history, and he took it on himself. Likewise, when we truly forgive someone, it will hurt. And it's important to remember, too, when we're talking about this, that Jesus Christ is God. God, the Father, didn't inflict punishment on someone else. God absorbed it himself as Jesus. The second thing that Keller talks about is that real love is a personal exchange. It's easy to love someone who has it all together, who's happy, um, but to love someone who is flawed or emotionally wounded, that takes effort. It means that we'll likely be emotionally drained as we seek to love them and to help them. As an example of this, consider any movie where someone is innocent but is being pursued by dangerous people. I was shocked at how quickly I could come up with examples. Maybe I watched too many movies. Um, But Mission Impossible, the first one, 
In order to save Ethan Hunt, some others have to kind of come alongside him and they put themselves in danger. Captain America, the Winter Soldier. You know, the captain is wrongfully accused of being Hydra. Uh, Monsters, Inc. Boo, right? The little girl. And, uh, and, and Sully come, kind of helps her and it puts him, it puts him in danger. Um, that's like the whole story of the movie. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Right? Okay, I'm, I'm glad you guys are tracking. The Born Identity. You know, when Marie meets Jason Bourne, she has a choice. She can choose to help him, and if she doesn't, then he's probably going to die as a result. Or she can choose not, I'm sorry, she can choose not to help him, who will probably die as a result. She can choose to help him, but she puts herself in mortal danger. There's, there's this exchange that happens, is my point. Um, consider parenting. Children are totally dependent when they're born. They need us for everything in their lives. We give up freedom, income, time, sleep, and any number of last bites of something that we were really enjoying, but then our child asks us for the last bite. And how can you say no, right? So love involves exchange. When we look at the cross, we see God exchanging himself for us. What we deserved, the debt of sin that we could never pay ourselves, Jesus paid for us. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. In this, God shows his great love for us and shows justice. The price is paid in full. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin. There was no other way. Before the message, uh, Melissa and Brian merrily sang the song, Jesus Walked This Lonesome Valley, while Jonathan read from Psalm 22. This song, its history includes a long line of variations in both uh, Appalachian folk music and African-American spirituals. It was known as a journey song. It was a song that reflected a necessary passage through a dark or lonely experience. Loneliness was a common theme in both Appalachian and spiritual traditions. You had phrases like lonesome dove or lonesome grave or lonesome night. Um, Musicologists of the time observed that in areas like West Virginia, there were a few roads that led to the remote location. So loneliness was just part of, of their identity. Likewise, African-American slaves experienced overwhelming sorrow and oppression. And these emotions were expressed in their songs. Sometimes the Lonesome Valley song shows up, this song shows up in first person. So I have to walk this Lonesome Valley. Or sometimes it's in second person. You got to walk the Lonesome Valley. According to uh, C. Michael Hahn, an ethnomusicologist and worship scholar who I've had the pleasure of meeting and learning from, the change of lyrics so that the song is about Jesus has roots in the African-American experience. So there is no other way, only Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, could satisfy justice, show mercy, demonstrate love for you and for me on the cross. And because he experienced that lonely moment of abandonment and agony, we never walk alone. Not really. God is with you. He will never abandon you. So about the change from I must walk or you must walk to Jesus walked this lonesome valley, this is what Han writes. In the conflation of this African-American variant with other journey songs, the song is transformed as a narrative that implies that Jesus on the way to the cross is the model for those who suffer. Jesus is a model for those who suffer, God not only suffers for us, he suffers with us. As Keller concludes on this, when Jesus suffered for us, he was honoring justice. But when Jesus suffered with us, he was identifying with the oppressed of the world, not with their oppressors. Jesus goes with us. 
And he shows us that on the other side of suffering is unimaginable hope. As Jesus told his disciples and as he tells us, he is going before us to prepare a place for us. John 16.33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then Jesus does that. There's no suffering that we face where Jesus hasn't gone before us and also goes with us. He is with you and me when we feel the most alone. That's why we describe the cross sometimes as wonderful. This object of humiliation and pain, because Jesus endured it, it's the symbol of God's great love, his enduring forgiveness, his unchangeable promise to us. So, to close here, uh, what do we do when we survey the wondrous cross? What do we see? And the worship team can come up. We're going to sing a couple of songs here. Number one, Jesus identifies with our suffering. All of us have experienced hurt in our lives, a spouse or a partner walking away, a spouse passing away, cancer, depression. I know many of you well, and I know the valleys that you've walked through and that some of you are walking through right now. But Jesus not only knows your story, he enters into it. He walks with you. He He suffered not just to forgive our sins on the cross, but because he wants you to know he understands. Psalm 22, 24 reminds us, he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. When we cry to God for help, he is listening. He's on your side and he'll never abandon you. So maybe some questions to consider. Where have you been in a lonesome valley lately? Can you share with God what you're experiencing? You know, Jesus didn't hesitate to cry out when he felt that God had abandoned him. How do you need to cry out to God this morning? Number two, Jesus has taken the burden of sin and guilt. He took your place. He absorbed the penalty of your sin on the cross. He paid the debt. In exchange, you're forgiven. Of all the things that might weigh you down in life, don't let guilt be one of them. You were made to walk in the light and freedom of God's grace. We were made to know God's joy, his peace, his hope for tomorrow. Whatever you're carrying, admit that you need Jesus. Believe in the work that Jesus did on the cross and commit to following him. A couple of questions you might ask on this. Have you put your trust in Jesus and his sacrifice for your sins? That's a weight that none of us need to bear because Jesus has already done it. What would it take for you to trust him now to accept his forgiveness? And then the third thing to close here, on the other side of the cross is resurrection. Now, intentionally, because we're in the season of Lent, we didn't talk about that much this morning. Uh, this is, Lent is a valley of sorts that we should walk through. Um, you are dust, and to dust you will return. We need to remember that. We need to remember that we need God for life. But you heard this morning, Psalm 22 does end with God's justice and victory. After Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. After Jesus suffered and died, after he was in the grave, he rose anew. No matter what we suffer, we have hope for tomorrow. Jesus is with us. Hebrews 12 reminds us, consider him who endured such opposition so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. So a couple of questions. Where do you need God to remind you that he is near? In what areas of your life do you need God's strength and hope to carry you through? Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for 
the sacrifice that you made on our behalf on the cross. God, remind us that you are near. When we walk through valleys, you are close. You never abandon us. You've given us a hope that does not change. For that, we're grateful, God. Help us to turn to you with the burdens that we bear. Help us to turn to you when we know that we are suffering. Help us to turn to you for renewal, for new life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.